Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a committee tasked with studying alleged foreign interference in Canada's last two elections is set to hear for the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. I'm going to give you the expectations and the highlights of what's going to be said. In the 70s, three quarters of Swedish homes were heated with oil boilers. Well, today, the electric power heat pumps have all but replaced them. How can Canada get into that game? And could allowing undocumented immigrants to stay and actually work and stay here in Canada benefit us? Armenia Alnizian, who's an economist at Atkinson Fellow at the Future of Workers, joins us to discuss her op-ed piece. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ottawa is where the focus is going to be for an awful lot of us later on today, as uh, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff actually will be testifying. Uh, Katie Telford prepares to testify before the procedure and House Affairs Committee about foreign interference. Uh, the Prime Minister was asked about this yesterday, as a matter of fact, and he said, look, you know, no big deal here. He, he and the Chief of Staff have been talking about interference for years now. The conversations I have with my Chief of Staff and with uh, my entire government and with our defense and security experts are ongoing. Uh, we have been talking about foreign interference for years. So what can we expect uh, later on today? It's supposed to be just afternoon, we're told, that uh, that, that part of the hearing will take place. To uh, analyze that and maybe do a little uh, crystal balling here, so pleased to welcome back to the program Richard Brennan, a former journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, pleasure to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm good, Bill. Yourself? Fabulous. Uh Listen, let's talk a little bit about Katie Telford. And uh, there's been a, a lot made about this whole situation. You know, the, the conservatives on the committee were, you know, saying, look, we're going to pass a motion in Parliament to make sure she comes. And they, they finally, the Prime Minister's office said, okay, she'll be there. Uh, I, I'm a little hesitant to have any high expectations about what we're going to hear today and what we're going to find out today. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I'd say you're 100%, Bill, on that because we are not going to be much further ahead when Katie's done. I know Katie Telford, uh, and she's very loyal, and she is not going to uh, really clear it up much more than what we already know. She, she will uh, lean on national security and say, she, say she can't say this, she can't say that. So we we really won't be much further ahead. It'll, it'll be it'll be good uh, theater if nothing else when she's questioned in, in committee. But I, yeah, I and, and that's the impression that I got. Any, you know, there'll be any uh, real information supplied to us. It'll be, uh, n- you know, nibbled around the edges, and that's about it. Well, we saw her, of course, because she also uh, testified uh, during the uh, the investigation into the uh, into the the trucker thing in Ottawa about a year and a half or so ago now, uh, and she's appeared before committees too. This is not something new for her, uh, and I, I I see exactly what you mean. I mean, she's she's the chief of staff because she's loyal to the prime minister. That's what it comes down to, uh, and she's very talented, very smart, and uh, as we've seen in her talking. Point. She sticks right to the talking point. She knows what she's going to say before anybody even asks the questions, and she's not going to stray. She doesn't get frazzled, does she? No, she's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, what, I guess the thing that really bugs me about this whole thing, Bill, is that, you know, the, min- the prime minister said yesterday, we've been talking about this for years. Well, why the heck didn't you tell the public then? Yeah. If, if this has been a concern, an issue... Uh, a matter a national security issue for a long time with with Russia or China interfering in our elections. Well, why the heck didn't we know this? 
Well, over and above that, that I, th- that's the clip we just played, of course, saying, you know, we've been, we've been having these discussions for years. Uh, that seems to be at, at odds with exactly what he said when this story broke a few months ago now, that he says he was unaware of all these documents and unaware of the CSIS investigations into it. So uh, is, is the truth somewhere in between, or are we just getting a different narrative here now? It's somewhere in between. I mean, he, he, I think, you know, he came out pretty quickly and, you know, kind of disavowed any knowledge of it, which was just ridiculous. We all know the prime ministers kept, you know, abreast of, of what you know, is happening here in terms of, uh, you know, other countries influencing businesses or, and or our elections. But now he's, you know, he's saying, well, me, you know, we have, we have talked about it. It's been a major issue. And uh, again, it's you know, so, so bloody typical, Bill. Governments, to governments, uh, knowledge, information is power. And they are reluctant to share it. And they certainly are reluctant to share it with the opposition. That's why the, the, you know, the liberals, you know, dug in their heels and weren't prepared to have, have uh, Ms. Telfer uh, go to the committee. But then they, they acquiesced and they said, okay, but they just, they just don't want people. They don't want information out. That's what it is until they want it out, period. Let me just circle back for a second, and maybe for, for those who may not be fully aware. I mean, chief of staff is, is a title, uh, but, I mean, you've, you've covered these guys in Ottawa. You've covered the, the provincial situation here at Queen's Park. Maybe just fill us in a little bit about the power that the chief of staff of a prime minister or a premier actually holds about uh, what, get, what gets put on his desk and what policies are going to be enacted upon and, and, and who gets to meet the, and, and have meetings with the prime minister. It's a pretty important job, isn't it? She is the gatekeeper, or he, you know, and if or he, in cases, uh, other uh, premiers or prime ministers. No, she's the one that sh- she's got the power. There's no question about it. And if Katie Telfer, if you're if you're uh, even a cabinet minister, and if Katie Telfer gives you a call, you go, uh oh, what did I do wrong? And that's the kind of that's the kind of power they have because she is the direct voice to the prime minister, and he listened to her practically any more than anybody else, including all his cabinet ministers. And and talk to us about that that chain of command. I mean, you know, because there's some question as you know, as the prime minister stated uh, when this story broke uh, with the reporting that was done by Global and the Globe and Mail. Uh, they talked about this extensively, and uh, the, you know the prime minister basically said, "Well, I was I was not aware of this stuff," uh, which raised uh, questions about well, and I I understand that okay maybe the prime minister doesn't have eyes on everything, uh, but the chief of staff does, and you know so you know where where does that stop? Where does that end? And and you know whose responsibility is it? I I, I you've known Katie Telford for a long long time. She's not new to this business by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I don't see her uh, as the sort of person that would say, oh, that's not important. We don't have to bother the prime minister with that. you you got to figure that there was some pretty heavy-duty discussion about this at some point. Oh, of course, Bill. You don't, you know, that's, it's just hogwash. You, don't, you can't believe that for a minute, that he wasn't informed and didn't know about it. I mean, you know, they, they may not give him every little detail about what's happening, but he's certainly getting the top of the waves. I mean, it, he's a prime minister. She may be the detail person. She may be the one that knows that, you know, the nuts and bolts of what's happening. He may not, but he certainly knows the issue. 
And to suggest otherwise is just silly. What about that? You know, let's when the you, you know what hits the fan, as you know, as it did with SNC Lavalin and, and appears to be with this thing now. Uh, and all we know, of course, are these little snippets from the some of the CSIS documents that have been leaked. But even in SNC Lavalin, there was that you know that that well, the prime minister may not have been involved in this. Maybe he didn't have eyes on this. And it was Gerald Butts, another uh, key advisor, that that back, fell on his sword basically for the administration in that particular situation. Uh, but is it practical, though, from your experience covering federal and provincial politics here, uh, that that something as important as this would stop with the chief of staff and not go on to the prime minister's desk? Not a chance. Not a chance at all. I mean, he, they, she, in this case with Katie Telfer, again, I say who's absolutely loyal to the prime minister, she will uh, guard him or protect him from certain things that he maybe shouldn't know about or uh, just so he can, he can say, well, you know, and rightly so can say, well, you know, I'm sorry. I wasn't, I wasn't party to that. Or as, as in the case where he's saying what now with his, uh, his dad's uh, foundation named after his dad, that he's got, he got out of that a long time ago. Well, there you are. You know, he protected himself from, whatever might have happened, which did, how much he knew, God knows. But to suggest, again, to think that the prime minister is, you know, and in this case is uh, kept in the dark, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't wash. Well, but it's a, it's a, a reason, I was going to say an excuse, maybe it's more of an excuse, uh, that often comes up. And uh, the first thing that I jumped into my mind when I was reading about this the other day, uh, was Stephen Harper and the Senate expense sca- uh, scandal that, that you know, involved Mike Duffy and, and, and Pamela Wallen and a number of other people. Uh, and, and we were told, you know, uh, from the testimony during that investigation, that now the prime minister didn't know anything about it, that stopped with his chief of staff, and, and that they're the ones that actually decided to pay some of these people off or pay some of the expenses, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, no information and no knowledge of it. And it, it didn't sound reasonable at the time, but, you know, there was no evidence to the contrary. And it, it, it sounds like that's what's going to be happening here, too. Well, let's just go back to that for a second. There isn't anything in Stephen Harper's government that went on that he didn't know about. He knew some of the files, his, his cabinet minister's files, better than the actual cabinet minister's. The guy was a very, he was a policy wonk. He was a very detailed guy. Again, it's just, it's, it's beyond the pale to think that they, in his case, he didn't know about that. And it's beyond the pale to think, to even suggest that the uh, prime minister didn't know the the details or at least the top of the waves in terms of uh, influence by Russia or and or China in business and and or uh, our elections. Yeah, you know, it's just I don't buy it. Now, while this is happening, of course, David Johnson, we are told, is, is getting his investigation underway, uh, which is really an investigation as to whether or not there should be an investigation. Uh, and he's supposed to give his report, we're told, by May now. Uh, I, I, I don't see that he can do anything but recommend this, uh, that, that this go before some independent inquiry to try to get some information. But with, with that in mind, though, what are the chances 
that we're ever going to find out anything. Are we ever going to see any of the documentation that CSIS has prepared for this? You know, we're getting a little leak here and a little leak there. Uh, but I, I can't see this is going to be like, you know, the Pentagon Papers of Daniel Ellsberg years ago, you know, that just basically blew the lid off uh, the way that the Johnson administration was handling Vietnam and, and almost ru- well, pretty much ruined the reputation of, of the president and many other people there, too. Uh, I, I, is there a whistleblower here? Is there somebody who has these things sitting in a desk someplace and is it just letting them out piecemeal or is this going to stay sealed and, and unseen? I'm not sure what the opposition expects out of this. Uh, you, you might, and we're referring to the uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, there might be a, certainly a smoking gun there, but what, what are we going to find out that, yes, Russia, you know, did it involve, it did try and influence our elections? And, and that we're just going to hook up a little uh, technical glitch. We'll try to get that fixed in just a couple of seconds. Uh, but therein lies the problem is, to, is just how much information is going to be out there uh, and how much of it is just going to be speculation. And I guess that's the thing that worries an awful lot of us. And, and as we've said a thousand times, uh, in the absence of fact, you go with speculation. And that's what people are going to you know, digest if that's all that's going to be given to them. And so we may never know the truth here, and people are just going to, as they usually do in Ottawa during these investigations, uh, fall along party lines as to whether or not they're going to believe any of the information that's coming out here. And and that's going to be somewhat problematic uh, as far as getting to the truth. And, and uh, you know, there's all sorts of other questions about how we're going to get to that goal, if in fact that's what they're going to decide to do. So as, as you were just saying, uh, Badger, I mean, you know, the, the information is someplace uh, somebody in CSIS, somebody someplace has, the, has the, these details. Uh, but it, it, it sort of sounds like we're not going to get much more information than we already have, not from Kat, Katie Telford, not from anybody. Well, there's going to be people running for cover now, you know, at CSIS and elsewhere. You know, this information has, has leaked out a little bit here, a little bit there. But now I, I would say that that, that has been, that dam has been closed. Uh, there's just, there's nothing more that's going to come out I don't think, in terms of, particularly with Katie Telford, I mean, we can just forget uh, any suggestion that we're going to get all kinds of information from her. But the public inquiry, that could, that, that'll be a different kettle of fish. They can start digging into, as we just recently saw with, you know, the Red Hill Valley Parkway. Uh, that can reveal all kinds of things. And we may get, if we're going to ever get to the bottom of this, it's going to be a public inquiry. And I, I'm not one guy that asked for, I think the public inquiry, oh, yeah, you know, you hear the opposition say, let's have a public inquiry. Well, you just don't do it willy nilly. But in this case, given the speculation that we've had that people were influenced, you know, MPs were elected because they got money from the uh, Chinese government. I mean, that's pretty crucial stuff. And that's, that's, that's what could come out and I think would come out at a public inquiry. And I, I'm still not sure whether uh, it, that's going to be recommended. I, I, I really don't. I still think that's up in the air. Well, and I know we're just about out of time here. We've got about a minute left here. But again, let's assume that, that that's what uh, this David Johnson is going to recommend. Uh, 
what are the parameters going to be? I mean, because there was a public inquiry into Brian Mulroney and Carl Heinz Schreiber about, you know, the money exchanging hands and brown envelopes back and forth. Uh, and by the way, it was David Johnson that was in charge of that inquiry, too. Uh, but the concern and the criticism was that, look, at the parameters were so narrow there. There was a lot of things that they wanted to ask that they were not allowed to. Uh, it, that could happen again, couldn't it? Oh, absolutely. I covered that, Bill, that uh, Mulroney inquiry. Uh-huh. And uh, no, if if they really, if it's given a really narrow focus, which the government will uh, certainly try to do, is, you know, just is the, give it the certain parameters and you can't go outside those parameters, then, you know, will the public, will the public inquiry be worthwhile? That's where the opposition is really going to have to fight in order to get the information that they think is out there. And if it's, if, if it's too restricted, then it's just a waste of time and money. Exactly. Well, we've got lots to chew on, I guess, after today's testimony. We'll uh, talk about it next week, I'm sure. Uh, as always, thanks so much. Good to have you back in the program. Enjoy the weekend. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. See you later. You betcha. Richard Brennan, uh, the Badger, who uh, covered uh, federal politics uh, in Ottawa for years and years. And, of course, uh, more recently, uh, Queen's Park politics for the, uh, the Toronto Star newspaper chain. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Give you a little background on this. In the 1970s, uh, 75% of Swedish homes were heated with oil boilers. And that's not uncommon back in the 70s, right? Uh, but that's down uh, considerably right now uh, because of a, a rather innovative idea that the Swedish government has taken when it comes to heating. And uh, this was all exposed to a, a number of Canadians uh, at a, a symposium that was in Mississauga just last week called the Heat Pump Symposium in Mississauga. Uh, and I'm wondering if the kind of the light bulb went off in people's heads when they saw that and said, "Hey, maybe we can do something like this in Canada, or can we?" Let's ask our next guest. Ian Lee is an associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, and he joins us to talk about uh, these ideas about heat pumps and whether it's a viable alternative to what we've been doing in Canada uh, for many, many years. Ian, glad you could join us. Thanks for the time today. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. Let's let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, you know, the, we always are, are, you know, kind of wringing our hands about our dependence on fossil fuels, and we, we don't use oil so much to heat homes. We use natural gas in this country, but it, it variations on the same theme. Why haven't we pursued this kind of technology? It seems, on the surface, anyway, like it's a pretty good alternative. Um, there is, a, in my opinion, um, and I've done a huge amount of research on this. Um, there's an awful lot of hype around heat pumps that is not uh, justified. First off, I did own a heat pump uh, when I bought my house in 1988, and I had it until 1995. I replaced it. I did the research at the time, and I replaced it with a, uh, with a mid-efficiency gas furnace. And then I redid the research uh, literally 12 months ago, uh, again, when I had to replace my furnace, and I went with a high-efficiency gas furnace. To your question, and I mean empirically to your question, there's, there's two or three major issues. I'm not saying that they don't work. Of course they work. I'm talking about the cost. You can get a high efficiency furnace, 2,000 square foot house. It's around four to 5,000 Canadian dollars. I just did it, 4,500 to be precise. Um, to put in an equivalent heat pump and a backup heating system in a house of my size in the city of Ottawa, meaning the temperatures of Ottawa, is around $20,000. So the capital Ouch. cost of heat pump and backup is about, by my calculation, and I did some research and found some others who had similar calculations, it's about four times more expensive for the all-in capital cost. That's the first problem. 
The second problem, and nobody seems to talk about this for reasons that mystify me, um, although it's well known. Natural gas, of course, we quote it in dollars per whatever it is, cubic feet or 1,000 cubic feet. There's a well-known formula known to energy economists, known to Natural Resources Canada and other agencies that compute this, that you can compute and um, convert the cost of any energy source into an equivalent cents per kilowatt hour. And everybody knows the price of electricity in Ontario because it's very well publicized. It's around 12, 13 cents a kilowatt hour. Natural gas, when you use this well-known conversion formula to take the cost per, you know, 1,000 cubic feet and convert that into a price per kilowatt hour, is somewhere between 2 and 3 cents per kilowatt hour. In other words, natural gas is vastly cheaper than electricity. And although they won't say this, and I'm talking about the government, the whole purpose of the carbon tax, whether one agrees or disagrees with the carbon tax, the purpose of the carbon tax is not to make electricity cheaper. The purpose of the carbon tax is to make oil and natural gas more expensive so it eventually loses its price advantage over electricity. In other words, they want to drive up the price of natural gas and oil on an equivalent uh, cents per kilowatt hour over the next several years. Presently, and I mean 2023, April 2023, natural gas in Canada is still vastly cheaper than electricity. There's a third problem, and then I'll stop talking. The third problem no, is, okay. I'm just, this is, is that the, the, um, the heat pumps are only good to about minus 10. And by the way, Sweden, we think of it as a very cold country because it's further north than many of us in Canada. I looked up average mean temperatures, and because it's surrounded by water, that moderates it. The average temperature in Sweden is around minus 2 centigrade. It's actually warmer. And the heat pumps, because in Canada, we get temperatures minus 10, 15, 20, 25. The, the, average, the, the um, uh, air, so-called air heat pumps don't work. So then you've got to go to a ground heat pump, which is even more expensive than the, the baseline heat pumps that I'm talking to you about. So the disadvantages of heat pumps are that they're not effective at, at colder temperatures, and they're much more expensive, and the operating cost per kilowatt hour is far more expensive for a heat pump than it is for a natural gas furnace. Just on, on that one aspect of it alone, though, Ian, and, and that is the price. And as you say, because uh, they say they've, they've improved the technology a little bit, which means it's going to cost you even more than that. Uh, who has got 25000 bucks kicking around that they can say, I'm going to do a retrofit on my house? I, I can understand if the government wanted to go in this direction, they might do something like, okay, all new builds, you know, multi they, they have to use these if they wanted to go that way. But the other factor that, uh, that you and I have talked about in the past is uh, we, we have an oil and gas industry in this country, and you can't just shut the door and say, we're not using you guys anymore, uh, especially, as you say, because the business case right now actually favors natural gas more than the pumps. Right. Um, I, uh, one, two, two quick points. You're absolutely right. Um, and I know some of your listeners, especially if they're from environmental groups, they'll say this is a load of fooey. Well, I want to point out as corroborating evidence. Last year, the city of San Francisco, there was a counselor, there is a counselor on the, on the um, uh, you know, the elected councillors of the, of the uh, city. 
And he's an ardent, ardent green person who is demanding that the entire city of San Francisco completely decarbonize. And they want to get rid of every natural gas appliance, including natural gas heating. So they commissioned a study by uh, a very well-known green energy consulting company and said, okay, San Francisco is about the same size as Ottawa. It's 850,000 people in San Francisco. And they computed, did a study and said, what's the cost of converting? So they came up with two ranges for two different types of homes. High-rise condo apartment building type. I'm not going to talk about that. I mean, it, I can, but I, I'm, I'm going to be short of time. They also came up with a separate price for home, single-family home types, which many of us live in. And they came up with a range that the cost to completely retrofit that house, rip out all the natural gas appliances, gas dryers, I have one, uh, gas water tanks, gas heaters, would range from a low of 15000 U.S. dollars to a high of 40000 U.S. dollars per house. So, and by the way, that includes, of course, uh, retrofitting your, your circuit breaker box because your electrical supply, because most houses have 100 amps. To go to a heat pump, you need a 200-amp service. So you got to rewire your box, which will run anywhere from five to 10000 all by itself. Where I'm going with this is I'm not saying it can't be done. It's going to be frightfully, frightfully expensive because we have 15 million households in Canada and somewhere around one-half to two-thirds, I have come across contradictory data. Some say only half the houses are heated with natural gas and oil, I've read also two thirds. So somewhere on that 15 million households, there's seven and a half million to 10 million households heating with oil or propane or natural gas. And we're talking probably 40,000 per home to rip it out and retrofit it and go to heat pumps. And then the operating costs will be much higher because the cost of electricity is much higher. So these are formidable barriers to doing that. And I know that in the article, and the, and the gentleman from Sweden who was making the presentation said, well, government has to get involved with subsidies. That's, this is the wrong time to be asking the government to hand checks out to people these days. Ian, I'm glad you had some time for us today to, to actually shed some light and give us uh, a, a much broader perspective on this. I think it's, it's good information for most of us to have as we, we look for some alternatives here. Thank you so much for this today. Thanks very much, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Ian Lee, Associate Professor at the Spot School of Business at uh, Carleton University. I I know he'd done his homework because we've talked about this in the past about uh, new cost of furnaces, et cetera, et cetera. And anybody, he's absolutely right. We had to go through this about a year ago. Uh, And it never happens at at a convenient time, uh, financially or otherwise, when something like this happens. So, you know, we tread carefully and, and make sure you do the research before you make decisions like that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. When we talk about some of the things that governments have to make hard decisions on, uh, oftentimes you've got to remember that there's going to be a reaction uh, someplace else. I mean, nothing happens in, in isolation, and, and such is the case uh, with the, uh, the dealings, of course, with immigrants and refugees over the last little while. And uh, uh, it's, it's causing some problems. The government decided uh, that, you know, after discussions with the United States, for instance, uh, to shut down one of the entry points uh, that uh, they think is going to solve the problem. I'm not so sure it has. Uh, but one of the other elements that they have to address here, importantly, are undocumented immigrants. 
uh, and you know sh who should go, who should stay, how long should they be here, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, our next guest has a, a, a solution, and I think as well, I always love having Armin on the program because uh, she offers common sense alternatives to what's going on right now to solve some of these problems. And uh, the latest piece in the Toronto Star, I think, addresses that. It's uh, called "Allowing Undocumented Immigrants to Stay and Work in Canada Permanently." would benefit us all. Armin Yalnizian, of course, is an economist and Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers and uh, joins us once again on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Armin, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for the time. Great to be back, Bill. Well, it's, 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 it's kind of, you offer some common sense ideas here. Uh, you kind of cut through a lot of the biases people might have about what governments can and cannot do here. Uh, this is a big problem. Uh, we're trying to get our economy back. We need a workforce. You have people that are ready, willing to to stay here and contribute to that, but they're not able to. For Is, is it government red tape? Is it government attitude? What's, what's going on here? Well, just to be really clear, we're not talking about undocumented immigrants. We're talking about undocumented people who are here. They are mm -hmm. living. They are working. They are paying taxes in the form of sales taxes and property taxes. But they're not paying income taxes because they are in the underground economy. And what normally happens is not the people that got, um, you know, we shut the back door to uh, people coming in through unauthorized, through unauthorized um, entry points to Canada where they are completely in their legal rights to apply for refugee status. Um, but what we are talking about here are people that entered legally as an international student or with a temporary foreign work permit, permit were often sold a false bill of goods that that's step one to becoming permanent. And while it's true that half of our permanent immigrants that are admitted every year come from the ranks of the temporary resident. Most people that come here temporarily will never make that transition. And these people come here thinking they will, and they go through all the, all the incredibly complex and costly processes to see if they will qualify as a permanent resident and time either runs out or they are told no and they choose to stay. But that means that they can only work for the cash economy. So it's not like I'm talking about bringing in new people. I'm talking about the people who are here that have studied, lived, and worked in our midst, but have to do so underground. And what it would mean to bring them above ground, which is something we haven't done in Canada since 1973. And we would all benefit from doing it right now because there are a huge number of people in this category. Of course, because you're undocumented, we don't know how to count the numbers, but... Um, you know, we, we'll get into what the scale is later in our conversation, I'm sure. Yeah, let's do that. And, and in the piece that was in the Star, you talk about a, a, a particular case. Uh, you, you called him Sam. You, you changed the name, obviously, to protect his identity. Uh, but he he was living and breathing proof of exactly what you talked about, about some of the obstacles here. Uh, he came just the way you described, decided that he wanted to, to change his status, spent a lot of money on it, I mean, uh, you know, and, and really got nowhere. Indeed, his story is so tragic. His parents, um, who are uh, a working class family in India, who also lost their jobs during the pandemic, <laughs> um, had borrowed money from everybody to pay for his first semester of tuition at a, an Ontario college. They literally invested all their money in their son's future because he was such a bright kid. And they felt that he would not get the same education in India as he could get in Canada 
or the opportunity to have a, a good life. So they they scraped together all their savings and borrowed extra money to pay $8,500 for four months of business school in a college in Southern Ontario. And he came here and as a as an international student, you can work part-time if you're going to school full-time. That's part of your permit. It's all legal. So he took on a job working at a gas station about 20, 15 to 20 hours a week at the beginning. And then uh, COVID hit. So he was 17 years old when he came in uh, spring of 2019. This program goes four, uh, uh, six back-to-back semesters. So four months, four months, four months, two years. And most international students come here and they get a break in the summer, but this program just ran round the clock uh, for two years. And he thought, that's that's my ticket to, to actually making the grade and showing people quickly that I can integrate into Canadian uh, society. But when COVID happened, he just had really big difficulties with moving classes online. He said that, you know, most of the coursework was group work. It was very hard to find other people in the group. People didn't want to do the work. You couldn't meet anybody. You couldn't ask questions of your professor if you had any questions about any of the materials. He was terrified he was going to fail the course and consequently lose his status. And his boss at the gas station said, hey, change your status. I'll help you change your status. You don't have to be an international student anymore. You can be a temporary foreign worker. Here, meet this immigration expert. So, He worked with this immigration so-called expert that bungled the timing of things. He paid this immigration expert a total of $11,000 on top of the tens of thousands he had paid to go to school and then found himself at the end of almost two years of trying to switch status while he was working the whole time in the cash economy, uh, getting less than half. Let me just jump in for a second about that, I mean. He, he found himself completely without status. It was crazy. But when he meets this guy who's supposed to help him through the process, uh, and, and as you say, it did not end well, uh, was this gentleman just incompetent, or are, are there predators out there that are, are, are looking for people like this that they can take advantage of? I think we've lost it's untortured. This is a very important topic, very important uh, that we have a discussion about this because it's uh, it's going to be part of the solution, but there have to be, uh, as, uh, as I mean, it's described in the piece that was in the Toronto Star, uh, some uh, coordinated efforts again between levels of government about this. And uh, I would encourage you, I guess we're just about out of time and we don't have time to hook up with her once again, but uh, go to the Toronto Star webpage. And uh, the article itself, I think, gives a, a pretty good indication of what needs to happen here. It's called Allowing Undocumented Immigrants to Stay and Work in Canada Permanently, where they will become people that will pay taxes and contribute with their uh, their skills and, of course, with their, their income tax, uh, it could be part of the solution to some of the challenges that we're facing these days. Anyway, our thanks to uh, Armin for uh, spending some time with us. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.